Chapter 41 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sycamore Rockwell. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Extinction of Species. Changes in the Stations of Animals. Extension of the range of one species alters the condition of many others. The first appearance of a new species causes the chief disturbance. Changes known to have resulted from the advance of human population. Whether man increases the productive powers of the earth. Indigenous quadrupeds and birds extirpated in Great Britain. Extinction of the dodo. Rapid propagation of domestic quadrupeds in America. Power of exterminating species no prerogative of man. Concluding remarks. We have seen that the stations of animals and plants depend not merely on the influence of external agents in the inanimate world and the relations of that influence to the structure and habits of each species, but also on the state of the contemporary living beings which inhabit the same part of the globe. In other words, the possibility of the existence of a certain species in a given place, or of its thriving more or less therein, is determined not merely by temperature, humidity, soil, elevation, and other circumstances of the like, but also by the existence or non-existence, the abundance or scarcity of a particular assemblage of other plants and animals in the region. If it be shown that both these classes of circumstances, whether relating to the animate or inanimate creation, are perpetually changing, it will follow that species are subject to incessant vicissitudes. And if the result of these mutations, in the course of ages, be so great as materially to affect the general condition of stations, it will follow that the successive destruction of species must now be part of the regular and constant order of nature. Extension of the range of one species alters the condition of the others. It will be desirable first to consider the effects which every extension of the numbers or geographical range of one species must produce on the condition of others inhabiting the same regions. When the necessary consequences of such extensions have been fully explained, the reader will be prepared to appreciate the important influence which slight modifications in the physical geography of the globe may exert on the condition of organic beings. In the first place, it is clear that when any region is stacked with as great a variety of animals and plants as the productive powers of that region will enable it to support, the addition of any new species, or the permanent numerical increase of one previously established, must always be attended either by the local extermination or the numerical decrease of some other species. There may undoubtedly be considerable fluctuations from year to year, and the equilibrium may be again resorted without any permanent alteration. For, in particular seasons, a great supply of heat, humidity, or other causes may augment the total quality of vegetable produce, in which case all the animals subsiding on vegetable food, and others which prey on them, may multiply without any one species giving way. But whilst the aggregate quantity of vegetable produce remains unaltered, the progressive increase of one animal or plant implies the decline of another. All agriculturists and gardeners are familiar with the fact that when weeds intrude themselves into the space appropriated to cultivate species, the latter are starved in their growth or stifled. 
If we abandon for a short time a field or garden, a host of indigenous plants pour in and obtain the mastery, extirpating the exotics or putting an end to the monopoly of some native plants. If we enclose a park and stock it with as many deer as the herbage will support, we cannot add sheep without lessening the number of the deer, nor can other herbivorous species be subsequently introduced unless the individuals of each species in the park become fewer in proportion. So, if there be an island where leopards are the only beasts of prey, and the lion, tiger and hyena afterwards enter, the leopards, if they stand their ground, will be reduced in number. If the locusts then arrive and swarm greatly, they may deprive a large number of plant-eating animals of their food, and thereby cause a famine, not only among them, but among the beasts of prey. Certain species, perhaps, which had the weakest footing in the island, may thus be annihilated. We have seen how many distinct geographical provinces there are of aquatic and terrestrial species, and how great are the powers of migration conferred on different classes, whereby the inhabitants of one region may be enabled from time to time to invade another, and do actually so migrate and diffuse themselves over new countries. Now, although our knowledge of the history of the animate creation dates from so recent a period that we can scarcely trace the advance or decline of any animal or plant, except in those cases where the influence of man has intervened, yet we can easily conceive what must happen when some new colony of wild animals or plants enters a region for the first time and succeeds in establishing itself. Supposed effect of the first entrance of the polar bear into Iceland. Let us consider how great are the devastations committed at certain periods by the Greenland bears, when they are drifted to the shores of Iceland in considerable numbers on the ice. These periodical invasions are formidable even to man, so that when the bears arrive, the inhabitants collect together and go in pursuit of them with firearms each native who slays one being rewarded by the king of Denmark. The Danes of old, when they landed in their marauding expeditions upon our coast, hardly excited more alarm, nor did our islanders muster more promptly for the defence of their lives and property against the common enemy than the modern Icelanders against these formidable brutes. It often happens, says Henderson, that the natives are pursued by the bear when he has been long at sea and when his natural ferocity has been heightened by the keenness of hunger. If unarmed, it is frequently by stratagem only that they make their escape. Let us cast our thoughts back to the period when the first polar bears reached Iceland, before it was colonized by the Norwegians in 1874. We may imagine the breaking up of an immense barrier of ice like that which in 1816 and the following year disappeared from the east coast of Greenland, which it had surrounded for four centuries. By the aid of such means of transportation, a great number of these quadrupeds might effect a landing at the same time, and the havoc which they would make among the species previously settled in the island would be terrific. The deer, foxes, seals, and even birds on which these animals sometimes prey would be soon thinned down. But this would be a part only, and probably an insignificant portion of the aggregate amount of change brought about by the new invader. The plants on which the deer fed, being less consumed in consequence of the lessened numbers of that herbivorous species, would soon supply more food to several insects 
and probably to some terrestrial testacea, so that the latter would gain ground. The increase of these would furnish other insects and birds with food, so that the numbers of these last would be augmented. The diminution of the seals would afford a respite to some fish which they had persecuted, and these fish, in turn, would then multiply and press upon their peculiar prey. Many waterfowls, the eggs and young of which are devoured by foxes, would increase when the foxes were thinned down by the bears, and the fish on which the waterfowls subsided would then, in turn, be less numerous. Thus the numerical proportions of a great number of the inhabitants, both of the land and sea, might be permanently altered by the settling of one new species in the region and the changes caused indirectly would ramify through all classes of the living creation and be almost endless. An actual illustration of what we have here only proposed hypothetically is in some degree afforded by the selection of small islands by the either duck for its residence during the season of incubation, its nest being seldom if ever found on the shores of the mainland or even of a large island. The Icelanders are so well aware of this that they have expanded a great deal of labour in forming artificial islands by separating from the mainland certain promontories joined to it by narrow isthmuses. This insular position is necessary to guard against the destruction of the eggs and young birds by foxes, dogs and other animals. One year, says Hooker, it happened that in the small island of Vido, adjoining the coast of Iceland, a fox got over upon the ice and caused great alarm as an immense number of ducks were then sitting on their eggs and young ones. It was long before he was taken, which was at last, however, effected by bringing another fox to the island and fastening it by a string near the haunt of the former, by which he was allured within shot of the hunter. The first appearance of a new species causes the chief disturbance. It is usually the first appearance of an animal or plant in a region to which it was previously a stranger that gives rise to the chief alteration, since, after a time, an equilibrium is again established. But it must require ages before such an adjustment to the relative forces of so many conflicting agents can be definitely settled. The causes in simultaneous action are so numerous that they admit of an almost infinite number of combinations. And it is necessary that all these should have occurred once before the total amount of change, capable of flowing from any new disturbing force, can be estimated. Thus, for example, suppose that once in two centuries, a frost of unusual intensity, or a volcanic eruption of great violence accomplished by floods from the melting of glaciers, should occur in Iceland, or an epidemic disease, fatal to the larger number of individuals of some one species and not affecting others. These, and a variety of other contingencies, all of which may occur at once, or at periods separated by different intervals of time, ought to happen before it would be possible for us to declare what ultimate alteration the presence of any newcomer, such as the bear before mentioned, might occasion in the animal population of the isle. Every new condition in the state of the organic or inorganic creation, a new animal or plant, an additional snow-clad mountain, any permanent change, however slight in comparison to the whole, gives rise to a new order of things and may make a material change in regard to some one or more species. Yet a swarm of locusts or a frost of extreme intensity 
or an epidemic disease may pass away without any great apparent derangement. No species may be lost, and all may soon recover their former relative numbers because the same scourges may have visited the region again and again in preceding periods. Every plant that was incapable of resisting such a degree of cold, every animal which was exposed to be entirely cut off by an epidemic or by famine caused by the consumption of vegetation by the locusts, may have perished already, so that the subsequent recurrence of similar catastrophes is attended only by a temporary change. Changes caused by man. We are best acquainted with the mutations brought about by the progress of human population and the growth of plants and animals favoured by man. To these, therefore, we should in the first instance turn our attention. If we conclude from the concurrent testimony of history and of the evidence yielded by geological data that man is, comparatively speaking, of very modern origin, we must at once perceive how great a revolution in the state of the animate world the increase of the human race, considered merely as consumers of a certain quantity of organic matter, must necessarily cause. Whether man increases the productive powers of the earth. It may perhaps be said that man has in some degree compensated for the appropriation to himself of so much food by artificially improving the natural productiveness of soils, by irrigation, manure, and a judicious intermixture of mineral ingredients conveyed from different localities. But it admits of reasonable doubt whether upon the whole we fertilize or impoverish the lands which we occupy. This assertion may seem startling to many because they are so much in the habit of regarding the sterility or productiveness of land in relation to the wants of man and not as regards the organic world generally. It is difficult at first to conceive if a morass is converted into arable land and made to yield a crop of grain, even of moderate abundance, that we have not improved the capabilities of the habitable surface, that we have not empowered it to support a larger quantity of organic life. In such cases, however, a tract before of no utility to man may be reclaimed and become of high agricultural importance though it may nevertheless yield a scantier vegetation. If a lake be drained and turned into a meadow, the space will provide sustenance to man and many terrestrial animals serviceable to him, but not perhaps so much food as it previously yielded to the aquatic races. If the pestiferous pontine marshes were drained and covered with corn, like the plains of the Po, they might perhaps feed a smaller number of animals than they do now. For these morasses are filled with herds of buffaloes and swine, and they swarm with birds, reptiles, and insects. The felling of dense and lofty forests, which covered, even within the records of history, a considerable space on the globe, now tenanted by civilized men, must generally have lessened the amount of vegetable food throughout the space where these woods grew. We must also take into our account the area covered by towns and a still larger surface occupied by roads. If we force the soil to bear extraordinary crops one year, we are perhaps compelled to let it lie follow the next. But nothing so much counterbalances the fertilizing effect of human art as the extensive cultivation of foreign herbs and shrubs, which, although they are often more nutritious to man, seldom thrive with the same rank luxuriance as the native plants of a district. 
Man is, in truth, continually striving to diminish the natural diversity of the stations of animals and plants in every country, and to reduce them all to a small number fitted for species of economical use. He may succeed perfectly in attaining his object, even though the vegetation be comparatively meagre and the total amount of animal life be greatly lessened. Spix and Maritas have given a lively description of the incredible number of insects which lay waste the crops of Brazil, besides swarms of monkeys, flocks of parrots and other birds, as well as the packer goatee and wild swine. They describe the torment which the planter and naturalists suffer from the mosquitoes and the devastation of the ants and blatai. They speak of the dangers to which they were exposed from the jaguar, the poisonous serpents, crocodiles, scorpions, centipedes and spiders. But, with the increasing population and cultivation of the country, say these naturalists, these evils will gradually diminish. When the inhabitants have cut down the woods, drained the marshes, made roads in all directions, and founded villages and towns, man will by degrees triumph over the rank vegetation and noxious animals and all the elements will second and amply recompense his activity. The number of human beings now peopling the earth is supposed to amount to 800 millions, so that we may easily understand how great a number of beasts of prey, birds and animals of every class this prodigious population must have displaced. Independently of the still more important consequences which have followed from the derangement brought about by man in the relative numerical strength of particular species. Indigenous quadrupeds and birds extirpated in Great Britain. Let us make some inquiries into the extent of the influence which the progress of society has exerted during the last seven or eight centuries in altering the distribution of indigenous British animals. Dr. Fleming has prosecuted this inquiry with his usual zeal and ability, and in a memoir on the subject has enumerated the best authenticated examples of the decrease or extirpation of certain species during a period when our population has made the most rapid advances. I shall offer a brief outline of his results. The stag, as well as the followed deer and the roe, were formerly so abundant in our island that, according to Leslie, from five hundred to a thousand were sometimes slain at a hunting match. But the native races would already have been extinguished had they not been carefully preserved in certain forests. The otter, the marten, and the polecat were also in sufficient numbers to be pursued for the sake of their fur, but they have now been reduced within very narrow bounds. The wild cat and the fox have also been sacrificed throughout the greater part of the country for the security of the poultry yard or the fold. Badgers have been expelled from every district which at former periods they inhabited. Besides these which have been driven out from their favourite haunts and everywhere reduced in number, there are some which have been wholly extirpated, such as the ancient breed of indigenous horses and the wild boar. Of the wild oxen, a few remains are still preserved in some of the old English parks. The beaver, which is eagerly sought after for its fur, had become scarce at the close of the ninth century, and by the twelfth century was only to be met with, according to Giraudus de Berry, in one river in Wales and another in Scotland. The wolf, once so much dreaded by our ancestors, is said to have maintained its ground in Ireland so late as the beginning of the eighteenth century, 1710. Though it had been extirpated in Scotland thirty years before, 
and in England, at a much earlier period, the bear which, in Wales, was regarded as a beast of the chase, equal to the hare or the boar, only perished as a native of Scotland in the year 1057. Many native birds of prey have also been the subjects of unremitting persecution. The eagles, larger hawks, and ravens have disappeared from the more cultivated districts. The haunts of the mallard, the snipe, the redshank, and the bittern have been drained equally with the summer dwellings of the lapwig and the curlew. But these species still linger in some portion of the British Isles, whereas the larger capercailsies, or wood grouse, formerly natives of the pine forests of Ireland and Scotland, have been destroyed within the last sixty years. The egret and the crane, which appeared to have been formerly very common in Scotland, are now only occasional visitants. The bustard, Otistada, observes Graves, in his British ornithology, was formerly seen in the dawns and heaths of various parts of our island, in flocks of forty or fifty birds, whereas it is now a circumstance of rare occurrence to meet with a single individual. Bewick also remarks that they were formerly more common in this island than at present. They are now found only in the open counties of the south and east, in the plates of Wiltshire, Dorsetshire, and some parts of Yorkshire. In the few years that have elapsed since Bewick wrote, this bird has entirely disappeared from Wiltshire and Dorsetshire. These changes, it may be observed, are derived from very imperfect memorials, and relate only to the larger and more conspicuous animals inhabiting a small spot on the globe but they cannot fail to exalt our conception of the enormous revolutions which, in the course of several thousand years, the whole human species must have effected. Extinction of the dodo. The kangaroo and the emu are retreating rapidly before the progress of colonization in Australia, and it is scarcely admits of doubt that the general cultivation of that country must lead to the extirpation of both. The most striking example of the loss, even within the last two centuries, of a remarkable species is that of the dodo, a bird first seen by the Dutch when they landed on the Isle of France, at that time uninhabited, immediately after the discovery of the passage to the East Indies by the Cape of Good Hope. It was of a large size and singular form, its wings short, like those of an ostrich, and wholly incapable of sustaining its heavy body even for a short flight. In its general appearance, it differed from the ostrich, cassowary, or any known bird. Many naturalists gave figures of the dodo after the commencement of the 17th century, and there is a painting of it in the British Museum, which is said to have been taken from a living individual. Beneath the painting is a leg, in a fine state of preservation, which ornithologists are agreed cannot belong to any other known bird. In the museum at Oxford, also, there is a foot and a head in an imperfect state. In spite of the most active search during the last century, no information respecting the dodo was obtained, and some authors have gone so far as to pretend that it never existed. But a great mass of satisfactory evidence in favour of its recent existence has now been collected by Mr. Brodrip and by Mr. Strickland and Dr. Melville. Mr. Strickland, agreeing with Professor Reinhardt of Copenhagen in referring the dodo to the Columbidae, calls it a vulture-like, frugivorous pigeon. It appears also that another short-winged bird of the same order, called the solitaire, inhabited the small island of Rodriguez 300 miles east of the Mauritius. 
and has been exterminated by man, as have one or two different but allied birds of the Isle of Bourbon. Rapid propagation of domestic quadrupeds over the American continent. Next to the direct agency of man, his indirect influence in multiplying the numbers of large herbivorous quadrupeds of domesticated races may be regarded as one of the most obvious causes of the extermination of species. On this, and on several other grounds, the introduction of the horse, ox, and other mammalia into America, and their rapid propagation over that continent within the last three centuries, is a fact of great importance in natural history. The extraordinary herds of wild cattle and horses which overran the plains of South America sprung from a very few pairs first carried over by the Spaniards, and they prove that the wide geographical range of large species in great continents does not necessarily imply that they have existed there from remote periods. Humboldt observes in his travels on the authority of Azara that it is believed there exist in the pampas of Buenos Aires 12 million cows and 3 million horses, without comprising, in this enumeration, the cattle that have no acknowledged proprietor. In the Llanos of Caracas, the rich hatteros, or proprietors of pastoral farms, are entirely ignorant of the number of cattle they possess. The young are branded with the mark peculiar to each herd, and some of the most wealthy owners mark as many as 14,000 a year. In the northern plains, from the Orinoco to the lake of Maraicabo, Monsieur de Pons reckoned that 1,200,000 oxen, 180,000 horses, and 90,000 mules wandered at large. In some parts of the valley of the Mississippi, especially in the country of the Osage Islands, wild horses are immensely numerous. The establishment of black cattle in America dates from Columbus's second voyage to St. Domingo. They there multiplied rapidly, and that island presently became a kind of nursery from which these animals were successively transported to various parts of the continental coast and from thence into the interior. Notwithstanding these numerous exportations, in 27 years after the discovery of the island, herds of 4,000 head, as we learn from Oviedo, were not uncommon, and there were even some that amounted to 8,000. In 1587, the number of hides exported from St. Domingo alone, according to Acosta's report, was 35,444, and in the same year there were exported 64,350 from the ports of New Spain. This was in the 65th year after the taking of Mexico, previous to which event the Spaniards, who came into that country, had not been able to engage in anything else than war. Everyone is aware that these animals are now established throughout the American continent, from Canada to the Straits of Magellan. The ass has thriven very generally in the New World, and we learn from Uloa that in Quito they ran wild and multiplied in amazing numbers so as to become a nuisance. They grazed together in herds, and when attacked, defended themselves with their mouths. If a horse happened to stray into the place where they fed, they all fell upon him and did not cease biting and kicking till they left him dead. The first hogs were carried to America by Columbus, and established in the island of St. Domingo the year following its discovery, in November 1493. In succeeding years, they were introduced into other places where the Spaniards settled, and in the space of half a century, they were found established in the New World 
from the latitude of 25 degrees north to the 40th degree of south latitude. Sheep also and goats were multiplied enormously in the New World, as have also the cat and the rat, which last, as before stated, has been imported unintentionally in ships. The dogs introduced by man, which have at different periods become wild in America, hunted in packs like the wolf and the jackal, destroying not only hogs, but the calves and foals of the wild cattle and horses. Uloa, in his voyage, and Buffon on the authority of old writers, relate a fact which illustrates very clearly the principle before explained, of the check which the increase of one animal necessarily offers to that of another. The Spaniards had introduced goats into the island of Juan Fernandez, where they became so prolific as to furnish the pirates who infested these seas with provisions. In order to cut off this resource from the buccaneers, a number of dogs were turned loose into the island, and so numerous did they become in their turn that they destroyed the goats in every accessible part, after which the number of wild dogs again decreased. Increase of reindeer imported into Iceland As an example of the rapidity with which a large tract may become peopled by the offspring of a single pair of quadrupeds, it may be mentioned that in the year 1773, 13 reindeer were exported from Norway, only three of which reached Iceland. These were turned loose into the mountains of Goldbridge Cicel, where they multiplied so greatly in the course of 40 years that it was not uncommon to meet with herds consisting of from 40 to 100 in various districts. The reindeer, observes a modern writer, is in Lapland a loser by his connection with man, but Iceland will be this creature's paradise. There is, in the interior, a tract which Sir G. Mackenzie computes at not less than 40,000 square miles, without a single human habitation, and almost entirely unknown to the natives themselves. There are no wolves, the Icelanders will keep out the bears, and the reindeer, being almost unmolested by man, will have no enemy whatever, unless it has brought with it its own tormenting gadfly. Besides the quadrupeds before enumerated, our domestic foals have also succeeded in the West Indies and America, where they have the common foal, the goose, the duck, the peacock, the pigeon, and the guinea foal. As these were often taken suddenly from the temperate to very hot regions, they were not reared at first without much difficulty, but after a few generations they became familiarized to the climate, which in many cases approached much nearer than that of Europe to the temperature of their original native countries. The fact of so many millions of wild and tamed individuals of our domestic species, almost all of them the largest quadrupeds and birds, having been propagated throughout the new continent within the short period that has elapsed since the discovery of America, while no appreciable improvement can have been made in the productive powers of that vast continent, affords abundant evidence of the extraordinary changes which accompany the diffusion and progressive advancement of the human race over the globe. That it should have remained for us to witness such mighty revolutions is a proof, even if there was no other evidence, that the entrance of man into the planet is, comparatively speaking, of extremely modern date, and that the effects of his agency are only beginning to be felt. Population which the globe is capable of supporting.
A modern writer has estimated that there are in America upwards of four million square miles of useful soil, each capable of supporting two hundred persons, and nearly six million, each mile capable of supporting four hundred and ninety persons. If this conjecture be true, it will follow, as that author observes, that if the natural resources of America were fully developed, it would afford sustenance to five times as great a number of inhabitants as the entire mass of human beings existing at present upon the globe. The new continent, he thinks, though less than half the size of the old, contains an equal quantity of useful soil and much more than an equal amount of productive power. Be this as it may, we may safely conclude that the amount of human population now existing constitutes but a small proportion of that which the globe is capable of supporting, or which it is destined to sustain at no distant period by the rapid progress of society, especially in America, Australia, and certain parts of the old continent. Power of exterminating species, no prerogative of man. But if we reflect that many millions of square miles of the most fertile land occupied originally by a boundless variety of animal and vegetable forms have been already brought under the dominion of man and compelled, in a great measure, to yield nourishment to him and to a limited number of plants and animals which he has caused to increase, we must at once be convinced that the annihilation of a multitude of species has already been effected and will continue to go on hereafter, in certain regions, in a still more rapid ratio, as the colonies of highly civilized nations spread themselves over unoccupied lands. Yet, if we wield the sword of extermination, as we advance, we have no reason to repine at the havoc committed, nor to fancy with the Scottish poet that we violate the social union of nature, or complain with the melancholy Jacques that we are mere usurpers, tyrants, and what's worse, to fright the animals and to kill them up in their assigned and native dwelling place. We have only to reflect that in thus obtaining possession of the earth by conquest and defending our acquisitions by force, we exercise no exclusive prerogative. Every species which has spread itself from a small point over a wide area must in like manner have marked its progress by the diminution or the entire extirpation of some other and must maintain its ground by a successful struggle against the encroachments of other plants and animals. That minute parasitic plant, called the rust in wheat, has, like the hessian fly, the locust, and the aphis, caused famines ere now amongst the lords of the creation. The most insignificant and diminutive species, whether in the animal or vegetable kingdom, have each slaughtered their thousands as they disseminated themselves over the globe as well as the lion, when first it spread itself over the tropical regions of Africa. Concluding Remarks Although we have as yet considered one class only of the causes, the organic, by which species may become exterminated, yet it cannot but appear evident that the continued action of these alone, throughout myriads of future ages, must work an entire change in the state of the organic creation, not merely on the continents and islands, where the power of man is chiefly exerted, but in the great ocean, where his control is almost unknown. The mind is prepared by the contemplation of such future revolutions to look for the signs of others, of an analogous nature, in the monuments of the past.
Instead of being astonished at the proofs there manifested of endless mutations in the animate world, they will appear to one who has thought profoundly of the fluctuations now in progress to afford evidence in favor of the uniformity of the system, unless indeed we are precluded from speaking of uniformity when we characterize a principle of endless variation. End of chapter 41. Recording by Sycamore Rockwell www.voinovoiceovers.com